In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine, analyse the breaking news of a Russian military plane crash in Belgorod, and we hear the latest from the US as Donald Trump storms to another Republican primary win. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini. Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 24th of January. One year and 333 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I am joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and our guest is Mark Temnitsky. And our guest is Mark Temnitsky, a freelance journalist and non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Centre. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome, Mark. I'm going to start with this news that is breaking still, this IL-76 Russian military transport plane that's crashed in Belgorod region. Belgorod Oblast, that's the, the region directly sort of north of the border with Ukraine, Kharkiv region, Chernihiv, to the northeast of Chernihiv. Belgorod is that bit there. <clears throat> I put it up front like that because thereafter, we need to take, we need to be very, very careful about all the rest of the reporting that I'm going to offer you with caveats and everything else we'll see around it because we just don't really know. But anyway, let's uh, let's pile in. So what appears to have happened, and I don't think that's refuted, Russian military plane that does look like and is reported as an IL-76, Aleutian 76, crashed in the Belgorod border region. Everyone on board is reported as dead. The number that's been reported is 63 now, Russia's regional governor, Vashilav Gladkov, said there had been an incident in the Korachansky district, that's part of Belgorod, this morning, 50 k's-ish northeast of Kharkiv, only 20 k's from the border at its closest point. Search and rescue specialists are said to have been dispatched to the site. The 112 Telegram channel cited sources who said that the IL-76 crashed in the village of Yablonovo, that's 50 k's north of the Ukrainian border. Then the Blackrod Channel, which reports news from Belgorod region, published video footage of a plane crashing to the ground, exploding in a very large fireball. We've got that on our website at the moment, and you'll see it elsewhere. As I say, we're unable to verify any of the following claims, I would say, as I always do. Just ask how so much detail can be known so quickly, and think about what motivation anyone opining on this might have. So here we go. So a Russian member of parliament or Russian member of the Duma 
said that the aircraft was shot down by three missiles, very specifically three missiles. Retired General Andrei Kartopolov spoke to the Duma, that's, as I say, Russia's parliament, basically. So, yeah, imagine the audience he's talking to. He said the missiles were fired from a Patriot or an Iris-T surface-to-air missile launcher. Very specific. He said it was absolutely deliberate. They knew very well, as they, the Ukrainians, they knew very well that the plane was en route, where it was going, and the operators of surface-to-air missile systems cannot mistake transport planes for military planes or helicopters as targets. It was done deliberately to sabotage the prisoner exchange. That reference there to the prisoner exchange is Russia are saying that the aircraft had Ukrainian prisoners of war on board that were being flown, destination unknown, but being flown for a future prisoner swap. Now, I would I would ask you, I said, well, I would think, well, where is that aircraft flying? Is it going to fly into, it's not going to fly into Ukraine. It, almost, even if the two sides have spoken about this, and there have been prisoner exchanges, so at some level there is interaction, possibly through third party, but at some level the two sides are able to talk and exchange prisoners. We know that has happened, so they are able to reach out and touch each other in a civilised manner, have a conversation and coordinate prisoner exchanges. But would a very large military transport plane be flown from Russia direct into Ukraine? Unlikely. Would it be flown from Russia into occupied Ukraine? Unlikely. Is it possible? I don't know if the airfield at Donetsk airport is still functional for an aircraft of that size. Is there anywhere else? Was it flying from Belgorod to another part of Russia? So we don't know. But I just this idea that there was there were prisoner a prisoner exchange going on or some part of it again we've just got to hold in the back of our mind do we think that's correct so back to the russian duma yevgeny popov another member of the duma he then said russian armed forces had told ukraine that the plane was carrying 65 prisoners of war and that its planned route had been shared with them he claimed on telegram that a second il76 with 80 prisoners of war on board had been following the first plane but turned around after the uh, after the incident ukrainian online newspaper ukrainska pravda said according to our sources in the ukrainian defense forces the downing of the russian il76 is the work of the ukrainian armed forces the general staff this is still ukrainska pravda speaking the general staff also informed us that the plane was transporting missiles to the s300 complexes with which the russians are shelling kharkiv oblast Russia's state news agency TASS, quoting Russia's foreign ministry, said Kiev has committed an act of insane barbarism by shooting down IL-76 and questioned the possibility of any hostage release agreements. Russian MOD has put out a statement saying its radar had detected two Ukrainian missiles being launched and said Kiev was guilty of, obviously, an act of terrorism. But they said two missiles. I remember Andrei Kotopolov told the Duma it was three missiles. So, you know, just a lot of information, a lot of very specific information being banded around here. Now, they also said, Russian MOD said, a prisoner of war swap between Ukraine and Russia was due to take place, but has been cancelled. Andrei Yusov, a spokesman for Ukraine's military intelligence agency, speaking to Radio Liberty, said he can state the exchange plan for today is currently not taking place. Then Ukraine's Prisoners of War organisation, the Ukrainian Coordination Headquarters for the Treatment of Prisoners of War, they declined to comment on the suggested number of 65 Ukrainian POWs being on board the aircraft, but they did say in a statement, we urge the media and citizens to refrain from disseminating unverified information 
until official statements or comments are made public by authorised persons or bodies. We emphasise that the enemy is actively conducting information special operations against Ukraine aimed at destabilising Ukrainian society. We ask you to be responsible for disseminating sensitive information and use only official sources. So, where are we? Well, we're not sure. A plane has come down. That footage is widespread. It doesn't look like it's false. It looks like it's recent. It looks like it happened this morning. Uh, and it looks like an IL-76. Whether it had S-300 missiles on board, which is the suggestion from Ukraine, or Ukrainian POWs, which is the suggestion from Russia, we just do not know. So just, let's just everyone just take a step back and wait till more verifiable information comes forward. But there's a big... War of words, I think, is the fairest way to put it at the moment. But some very, very interesting and specific information put in front of the the Russian Duma there, which, as I say, just think about the audience that's on the receiving end of that and what the motivation might be. Now, next, Russia is conducting probing attacks along the front line in a bid to find weaknesses in Ukrainian forces and dispositions. That came from a senior Pentagon official yesterday. So Celeste Wallander, an assistant deputy secretary, said Moscow's forces plan to force Ukraine into expending precious ammunition, missiles and drones in countering the attacks. We've spoken of this before. This is sort of sensible military tactics to, to keep probing the line, see where, they, uh, see where the, the weak points are, try and work out what the opposition has got lined up against you. But Ms. Volander said they've not succeeded so far. Ukrainians have a lot of experience over the last few years on how to cope with these kind of Russian assaults. However, speaking around about the same time, Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, he said the war had turned into a battle of ammunition. He was speaking yesterday and said supply shortages have forced Kyiv's military to ration artillery rounds. He said increased production of ammunition is an absolute necessity to enable us to continue to provide support to Ukraine. Now, NATO yesterday signed a 1.1 billion euro deal to procure hundreds of thousands of rounds of 155 mil artillery ammunition for its members to use to rearm Ukrainian forces or to replenish their own stocks. Mr. Stoltenberg said, with the consumption of ammunition we see in Ukraine, with the needs we see, we need to ramp up production. Now, we've heard about this need to ration ammunition before, especially artillery ammunition on both sides. You may remember in December, Alexander Tanavsky, that's Ukraine's commander of operations in the southeast, he said his forces face a shortage of artillery shells due to the lack of Western military assistance. And in some areas that had forced troops, his troops to scale back operations along the, the front line. So those calls seem to be echoed again this week by Ukrainian soldiers in, in discussion with the Financial Times. They had, a, they had an article up. And in that article, one, a, a Ukrainian platoon commander said that, that they'd gone from firing 8,000 shells a day during the counteroffensive in the summer to about 2,000 a day in recent weeks. Now, EU partners last spring, Joe Barnes has, has been very hot on this following this one. EU partners last spring vowed to send Ukraine one million artillery rounds in the year. But as of December, the last figures that we had, Ukrainian officials said that only about 300,000 shells had been provided. Speaking on Monday, White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby, the chap we met when we, uh, when we went over there uh, in September, he said the next few months would be critical for Ukraine. He said the commanders are faced with difficult decisions about what weapon, weaponry to deploy because they don't know when the next shipment is going to come. That's a horrible place to put the Ukrainian military in as the Russians certainly aren't suffering under the same uncertainty 
as they reach out to North Korea for ballistic missiles and drones from Iran and continue producing their own. Now, on military aid to Ukraine, Western states reiterated their support uh, and commitment to the development of Ukraine's defence industrial base yesterday. This was at the 18th um, Ukraine Defence Contact Group, uh, better known as the Ramstein process, because it started off as the meeting was held yesterday in uh, the Ramstein Air Base, US Air Force Base in Germany. Ukrainian Defence Minister Rustam Amerov said that Belgium plans to provide Ukraine with uh, just over 600 million euros worth of military aid in 2024. That's about 660 million US dollars. US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin, interesting quote this one, he reiterated the US believes that Ukraine is appropriately using military aid and said the US continues to monitor an an account for US security assistance delivered to Ukraine. Mr. Austin stated explicitly that the US has seen, quote, no credible evidence of the misuse or illicit diversion of American equipment provided to Ukraine. I think he was, sorry, end of quote there, no doubt aiming those remarks at that portion of the domestic US audience who think money is and kit is being corruptly handled once it's given to Ukraine. Still on the theme of aid, Germany says it's going to donate a number of military helicopters to Ukraine. Defence Minister Boris Pistorius said six seeking helicopters are going to be sent to Kiev along with spare parts and training. Good helicopters, quite old. The Brits we sent, I think, six a few months ago. Seeking, you know, lovely, lovely helicopter, getting on a bit, but still a very capable beast. Mr Pistorius said the seeking is a proven and reliable helicopter. I just said that. That will help Ukrainians in many areas from reconnaissance over the Black Sea to transporting soldiers. This is the first German delivery of this type. That comes in for context. Earlier this month, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said Berlin plans to provide Ukraine with more than £6 billion worth, about $7.5 billion worth of aid in 2024. And just finally for this bit... David, Bill Blair, Defence Minister of Canada. Canada, a country that has provided so far about £1.4 billion worth, $1.8 billion worth of aid to Ukraine since the start of the full-scale invasion. Mr Blair said yesterday, we continue to strengthen our collaboration and coordination to provide Ukraine with the military aid it needs to defend its sovereignty and security. That sounds good. He was announcing a new military aid package but that military aid package came to 11 million quid. Now, when I first saw that, I thought I'd lost a decimal point or at least another figure. But no, it's 11 million, 14 million US dollars. And that package is for 10. So we do get into double figures, but 10 inflatable boats and an English language training course for Ukrainian Air Force pilots. So every little bit helps, but... Seriously, Canada. Seriously, there's a but there. And I'll take a pause there, David. Thank you very much, Dom, for talking us through all of that. Francis Sternley, let's zoom out then from Ukraine. What have you been looking at this morning? Well, thanks, David. Lots happening in the military realm, as we just heard. But it's far from quiet in the political one either. Sweden is almost a member of NATO as trailed yesterday in a much speedier time frame than many expected, including me, uh, Turkey's parliament voted last night to approve Sweden's application to join NATO, leaving Hungary as the only alliance member yet to ratify its membership. President Erdogan is expected to sign the legislation in the next few days. 
Today, we are one step closer to becoming a full member of NATO, said Sweden's prime minister. And it's true. The only barrier now, as I say, is Hungary, though we know Viktor Orban is keen to meet his Swedish counterpart, presumably to iron out some kind of deal. I know we've been expecting this for some months now, but we should just take a pause, to quote Dom, to appreciate the gravity of this. Again, Putin claimed to have started this war in response to NATO encroachment on its borders. As a result of this war, he triggered in Ukraine. NATO already has one new member, Finland, with another soon to join. Whatever is occurring on the battlefield or in the political world on a daily basis, it's these kind of developments which truly define the future trajectory in terms of victory or defeat for a country. When we speak of Russian containment once this war ends, it is steps such as this which would facilitate that policy with fewer and fewer places where it could seek to expand through force if it wanted to. So we should just mark this moment. Now, another long term issue that's been rumbling along is about the seizure of Russian assets in the West, specifically whether those assets that were frozen can be legally seized and then, say, given to Ukraine, as Kiev and many others advocate for. Well, we learned today that the EU will refuse to seize its portion of the 300 billion worth of Russian assets seized by the West. So senior officials told Reuters that the bloc fears it would be illegal to seize the 200 billion of that which is held in Europe. Confiscation of the capital of the Russian assets is not going to happen, one official said. Now, we understand the G7 will discuss the legality of the move at a meeting in February. And I'm sure that there are many legitimate barriers to doing this. But just bear in mind that the law is not fixed. If it were the desire of countries and institutions to do this, then they can just change the law. But there is evidently an anxiety about what that would mean. The Kremlin has, of course, already vowed to retaliate and seize the investments of Western companies in Russia if its frozen assets are confiscated. And I think Western countries also worry that this would set a precedent where independent financial institutions suddenly lose some of their legal rights to do with their clients' money as they so wish. It's no doubt one of those issues that If one pulls at the thread, the whole financial system as we know it may begin to unravel. Now, some I know would say that's no bad thing, but I think it is important to understand the complexity of this issue. And I think it is one for us to reflect on and to discuss with an economist with expertise in this area on a future podcast. It is not as simple as merely saying, well, we've got these frozen assets, we should just seize them and give them to Ukraine. Because what about other countries who have just as much rights to have their assets seized for, say, war crimes committed? Now, you could say that we should be doing that at the same time, perhaps. But once you pull up that thread, as I say, it becomes very, very complicated. I'm not apologising for it in any stretch of the imagination, as the listeners will know. But I'm just saying this is really, really, just from the little bit of reading that I've done into this recently, very, very complicated area. But if you're an expert on this, do reach out. Very interesting subject. And as we say, very much an important one because of the scale of those assets. 300 billion would solve a lot of problems for Ukraine, not in, only in terms of uh, financial procurement that it needs to fight the war, but also for its reconstruction afterwards. But anyway, one for another time, I think. Speaking of Russia, we discussed the ongoing aggression in 
Russia yesterday about the opposition. And in today's British MOD intelligence briefing, they agreed that Putin's repression of Russians who criticise the war in Ukraine is intensifying. It referenced the State Duma bill we talked about designed to seize the financial assets, including property of Russians who openly criticise the Russian military and special military operation. This legislation, it said, highly likely seeks to deter and silence anti-war opposition. In conjunction with the foreign agents' measures, it likely intends to restrict criticism of the war altogether. Now, as we said, the timing of this is very, very important with the so-called elections, inverted commas, in Russia coming in the next couple of months, where there are still opportunities for Putin to be embarrassed by public displays of opposition. That was something we discussed with James Kilner in more detail yesterday, just exactly what a bad, successful election for Putin would look like. So I recommend if listeners miss that to listen to yesterday's episode. It's quite interesting hearing his thoughts on that. But I just want to end this section today with an interesting read by Christopher Miller, which obviously reflects on both the political world and the military one in the Financial Times. It's called Active Defence, How Ukraine Plans to Survive 2024. And it neatly summarises the phases of the war so far on the battlefront and how the Ukrainian command strategy has evolved over time. It discusses specifically this idea of active defence, namely holding defensive lines but probing for weak spots to exploit, coupled with those long-range airstrikes, which Miller says... Kiev believes would allow Ukraine to build its own forces this year and prefer for, prepare for 2025 when a counteroffensive would have a better chance. Now, he also speaks to Ukrainian security officials, speaking on a condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive issues. On another reason for Ukraine to increase focus on strengthening defences, that Russia may also be planning a large-scale offensive as early as the summer, its goal being to capture the remainder of the four regions, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia, Putin claimed to have annexed in September 2022. In addition, the officials say, another attempt at Kharkiv or even Kiev was not out of the question. This, he says, tallies with a newly declassified US intelligence assessment reviewed by the FT that notes that Putin's ultimate goal in Ukraine of conquering the country and subjugating its people remains unchanged. Now, if these assessments are accurate, it underlines two critical points, I think. First, that 2024 is, as we've discussed, a year where Ukraine is prioritising the attainment of resources in the form of manpower, munitions, aircraft, with 2025 when we might expect to see the next major offensive. Now, we don't know, but there is a lot of speculation about that. This would really matter. As I keep saying and having conversations to bigwigs here in London who seem to think that the deadline for the war is the presidential election in the US, because if Trump wins, Kiev would be likely forced to the negotiating table. As I keep emphasising, Ukraine is not thinking in those terms. It is playing and planning far beyond that. So people who keep naively assuming that Ukraine will do whatever Washington asks this year are underappreciating that fact. Now, I know a lot can change in the political realm in Ukraine this year, which would change that equation. But nevertheless, there needs to be, I think, a better appreciation of the evolved Ukrainian strategy, independent of what happens in the case of a US withdrawal, as potentially as disastrous as that would be for Kyiv. If we don't appreciate that, then 
a lot of decisions, calculations, assumptions are being made in the West, not least in America, which are based on flawed understandings of the Ukrainian and European position, I believe, personally. Now, the other point that cannot be drummed home enough is that there is little evidence, as Miller says in the piece, that Putin is not absolutely committed to a total victory in this war with the seizure of much, if not all, of the country and of the destruction of the political system in Kiev. The notion that he wants an off-ramp now, as he may have at different phases of the war, is for the birds. And it is vital to remember that when we think about the calculations being made at present. So those are the stories that have caught my eye today, David. A lot going on in both fields. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for your thoughts there. Mark Timitsky, thank you so much for joining us. We're hugely appreciative. And thank you so much for waking up so early to join us. I've got my sort of broad questions, but of course, you're more than welcome to respond to any of the points raised so far. We talk regularly, of course, to our, and listeners will be familiar, with our US editor, Tony Diver. And we ask him for his sense of the current state of debate in American political circles on the war in Ukraine. Earlier, Dom mentioned the news of how desperate some Ukrainian troops are for ammo, how they're forced to ration it. What's the state, according to you, of the debate in American political circles? Do people understand the urgency and what's at stake? So this is something that's very strange in that if you look at numerous articles published either in widely read news outlets or local newspapers and television interviews, there have been a wide range of pieces on the importance of why Ukraine needs to succeed, sending aid to Ukraine from the United States, ranging from philosophical debates to the discussions on, you know, U- US aid to Ukraine compared to the entire defense budget is only five or six percent. And, and despite these conversations, there is still a segment of the United States population, as well as some members in Congress, who are, to put it, they are disinterested in, in continuing to send aid to Ukraine. And it's very odd. Many public opinion polls still say that the majority of Ukrainians support and want their military to succeed. And many public opinion polls show in the United States that most Americans still want the US to continue sending aid. So it really is a large puzzle. Can we get into that then? You you mentioned there the word disinterested. Why do you think that is? Is it the distance? Is it the length of time that the full-scale invasion has been going on? What's your sense? Some common talking points are this organization of individuals within the United States feel, as they say, America first. So a lot of financial assistance should be applied to perhaps rebuilding infrastructure or the United in the United States or helping with job assistance, etc., rather than sending aid to foreign countries. And this is not something that's new in many American thinkings. This was also the sentiment in World War One when the Americans were hesitant to provide assistance to Europe and then eventually join the war, as well as in World War II. Just following up on something you said there, then, you say it, it's part of this general sentiment that we shouldn't be sending, America shouldn't be sending aid to other countries. Do, do you think then that the American public uh, don't see the Ukraine war as a sort of, as a defining epoch shaping event, but actually just one of many things that actually they don't think, that they don't think the country should be paying attention to? I, I think it's a small portion, but this is still a a large voter base that is electing people who have similar beliefs that they do. And 
there are many Americans, to be fair, who do still understand the significance about not a single U.S. soldier, for instance, has died helping Ukraine. There have been volunteers who have been, but active duty, duty individuals have not gone. And it's costing peanuts. There was a common belief that Russia had the strongest, second strongest military in the world. And over the last two years, they've now gone from the second strongest military in the world to the second strongest military in Ukraine. So for very little assistance in terms of how involved or not involved a country can be, the United States and Ukraine have done very, very well to diminish and degrade Russian capabilities. Mark, could you help us as Europeans understand this? And I apologize to our US listeners who who probably will just know this inherently, but could you take a step back and tell us the story, explain to us and to listeners outside the US how aid to Ukraine became a, a partisan issue? Certainly. So Something that I think is important to inform listeners is despite some beliefs that this is just a blank check that is being sent to Ukraine, there's actually a formal process about how assistance is provided. So either the president or Congress will discuss new assistance packages to Ukraine or another country, depending on, on who they are working with. And it's debated and agreed upon. It's it's not like some numbers taken out of thin air and they invent something, right? It's They have a process and then this money is allocated to a certain program. So there's also a misconception that aid to Ukraine is preventing other programs from being funded, and that's not true. But unfortunately, there has been a lot of misunderstandings and misinformation within the United States about how aid to Ukraine is being provided, and I, and I think that's important. Something that the New York Times has reported on is President Biden initially believed that because Ukraine aid was being stalled in Congress, he thought, well, if I pair Ukraine aid with also aid to Israel and strengthening the border with Mexico, this would encourage representatives to pass through additional assistance. And unfortunately, it backfired. And it, it has now become a political issue and it, and it has become a very partisan issue. The, the odd thing, too, is if you ask many members of Congress if they support Ukraine, they would say yes. So it, it's a little mind-boggling why individuals who say that they want to support Ukraine are so caught up on, on a matter with security issues. And this has been going on now for three months where the Democrats and Republicans keep meeting with one another to try to hopefully push something through. Thank you very much for that explanation, Mark. I'm afraid I'm going to ask you another sort of Euro question here, but... Donald Trump, we'll have to talk more about him, I think, as the months um, progress and we come closer to the November presidential election. Uh, in your view, is he all but assured to be the Republican nominee? And what do we know about his approach to Ukraine in the future? So I think to the first question, the answer is yes. As we've seen over the last few weeks, the scale of potential candidates has dwindled very, very quickly. And it is now just left with former President Trump and former Ambassador Haley. And she just lost the caucus in New Hampshire. So it, it seems, you know, nothing is impossible, but it seems unlikely that she will be able to defeat him. So I think it is time to start assuming that he will be the Republican nominee for the election in November. In terms of his relationship with Ukraine, it's, it's very fragile and complicated. When the 2016 election occurred, when former President Trump was competing against Secretary Clinton, 
He kept saying that Ukraine was interfering in the U.S. elections. I think it's important to inform everyone that there were independent investigations done by the Department of Justice, CIA, NSA, FBI, and the Senate. All five groups independently found that there was no election meddling from Ukraine. In fact, there's a very long, detailed report. I'm sure many know the Mueller report where it said there was Russian interference. He also was infamous for the scandal with Zelensky back in 2019, where he had asked President Zelensky to conduct research on the Biden family. And in exchange, he was going to offer more defense equipment to the Ukrainians against the first invasion with Russia. The Office of Management and Budget found that this was actually illegal. They said that the president cannot withhold aid from a country that has already been passed through with legislation. And more recently, President Trump has been saying that if he was in charge, he would force Zelensky and Putin to a ceasefire, which, as your colleague said earlier, Ukraine has no interest in going in a ceasefire with Russia. Ukraine has said on multiple occasions that the only goal they have is to completely have Russia leave all parts of territory, including the Donbass and Crimea. So as we were discussing earlier, there's this misconception that Washington has some sort of hold over the Ukrainians. Of course, the Ukrainians are very grateful for all the assistance that the Americans have provided them to this date. But they also do not want to be told what they can and cannot do on the battlefield while they're defending their country. Thank you very much for your account there, Mark. I know Francis has questions, so just a few more from me, if that's all right. Just looking ahead again to the upcoming presidential election, I know in the past you've written about the far right in America, not necessarily a, um, as you've said uh, earlier today, not necessarily a huge number of people, but an, an important group we need to talk about. What's their position on these elections, and how does the Ukraine issue play for them? Mm-hmm. So they, the far right members within the United States, they're very consistent in their voting. So these individuals voted for President Trump in the 2016 election. They voted for him in the 2020 election, and they most likely will vote for him in the 2024 election. So this is a solid base that he can rely on when the elections occur, as well as members within Congress who have similar ideas. And as as I mentioned earlier, they have a very America first belief. They want money to stay within the United States. They don't believe that the United States should meddle in the affairs of other countries. I think it's important to state in this case that Ukraine is a democracy and it's an, also an ally of the United States and it's aspiring to have institutions and capabilities similar to what the EU and, and the US has. So it's, and it by the notion of also defending itself from the Russian invasion. It's also working with Westerners to reform its government, which I think is very impressive, as we've recently saw with the EU stating that they will pursue potential candidate status in the future with Ukraine. And I I think that speaks volumes about the anti-corruption efforts that Ukrainians are trying to do. And this group votes, but also it's important to show that research centers like Pew and then the Associated Press, etc., news outlets and other centers in the United States continuously have shown that while some public opinion has declined over the last two years, which is normal for any type of war, the majority of Americans still do support Ukraine aid. And it's just a matter of hopefully Congress coming together and, and pushing through a new aid package. But there are concerns. And, and I think those concerns are legitimate.
Well, thank you very much, Mark. Francis, I know you have some questions. Francis Sternley. Well, thanks, Mark, uh, for your time today. I'm very interested in this question of the Republican Party and the sort of future trajectory if things go the way they seem to be going. We know Trump is unpredictable and it could be that if he were to win the presidency again, that he does actually back Ukraine. You speak to Ukrainians and they don't think he is the boogeyman because of the support that he provided to them before the war began. We know that that's a known unknown in terms of what Trump will do. But I want to talk about the more predictable elements in Washington society and ask your perspective on this. So I heard from somebody whose opinion I trust on this that when he was first elected as president, it came as a huge shock to the Washington establishment, including the think tanks, the administrations, all of those entities that are required for a government to effectively function, which was partly why things seemed so chaotic. This time around, a lot of people on the right, say, as I say, in those think tanks who build policy, have been expecting this. They've seen this coming for a long time. And so the expectation is that if Trump were to win the presidency again, this administration would be full of people who know what they want to achieve, have a clear policy agenda and would be more likely to try and drive that agenda rather than it being something that is a little bit more chaotic in the initial months, at least. So with that in mind, and we return to the issue of Ukraine, what do we know about the, say, intelligentsia of the Republican right-wing fraternity in the sense of what do they want to see? Because I'm quite struck how often I hear certain people in Trumpite circles who really, really hate Zelensky almost personally. And there's that side of it. But then you speak to other sort of more thinky, wonk type people who actually are much more hawkish on the matter of Ukraine. So I'm just interested in your reflections on this point. Trump is unknowable, but the people around him may not be. How have things changed on the matter of Ukraine? And where do you think the direction of travel is going? Mm -hmm. I I don't think they have. And the reason I say that is the majority of the Republican leadership as well as members in the House and Senate, continue to support Ukraine. But it's that small portion of individuals, you know, in the House, there's 400 some odd members and only 70 Republicans. So from a numbers game, they are a small portion, but they still are controlling everything. Former Speaker of the House McCarthy was chased out because that small contingent could not agree upon him with anything and he needed their support. And now there are rumors that perhaps even current Speaker Johnson will lose his speakership too because he just cannot appeal to these individuals. And this is a solid block that will not move on anything. So while factually I know that the majority of the Republican Party and their leaders continue to support Ukraine, you still have these far-right individuals who in, in some cases are pushing through policy because the Republicans need their votes on certain types of bills. And it's, I personally do not believe that anything would change. And we could even go further from Ukraine. It's well known and documented by former individuals of the Trump administration that he also has a desire to withdraw from NATO. And that's why (laughs) a few months ago, members in Congress pushed through a bill saying that the United States cannot withdraw from NATO because they're, I think that this is just contingent planning in case it were to occur that he was elected again. That's interesting. 
Obviously, something we might see, though, is if in that presidential election that the makeup of the Republican Party could also change and some of the grip of those individuals could weaken who are currently hampering efforts? Or do you think that we would actually just see an election of more people like that? Will that caucus, will that element of the Republican Party become more powerful, do you think, not less in the event of a Trump victory? I think less. And the reason there have been some interviews recently with voters, most recently with the Iowa and New Hampshire caucuses. And many individuals, everyday citizens, have said that they've been voting for candidates other than President Trump because they don't want him to be elected. And some of them have even said that they would vote for President Biden. And and this includes, as well, independents and Democrats, I think, are more likely, based on current polling, of course, things can change. Based on current polling, they still support President Biden. So while President Trump has a base that will continue to support him, I think he has lost some members within the party over the years because of of this very erratic behavior, as we discussed earlier. Unpredictable. Hey, Mark, it's Dom here. Thanks uh, thanks for joining us today. Just one for me. Uh, Before the Donald Trump presidency, the last one, you know, if that's not couched in the terms of the debate, um, there was all, all the similar calls that we're hearing now that that he's not a serious character, he's not going to be able to, um, he's not going to be able to form an administration. And there was this argument that, well, don't worry, there'll be grown-ups in the room, there'll be, the, they'll have a tempering effect, the likes of John Bolton, Jim Mattis, these kind of characters. And you can take a view on, on whether or not, whether or not that actually worked. This time round, I've seen a number of reports that actually he's got a much stronger organisation about him with a clearer purpose, um, however you may see that, but a, but a more rigid organisation and structure that might hit the ground running a lot quicker than the last time. Do you buy into that? Do you think he's actually, if it is going to be Donald Trump for the nomination and if he's, he takes the presidency, that, that he will be a different character than before? I have my reservations, but just be very interested in your, your view. I think not, but I think with the time that has passed, people understand how he operates now. And that can allow for some planning in terms of how he behaves, because as, as we know, when he would go into press conferences or he would have speeches, he would often go off script. So I, I think that if he were to be reelected, and he would surround himself with knowledgeable individuals, they would have a better sense. I, I, I don't think that anyone, frankly, <laughs> can control him. I think that he can be a loose cannon in, in many times, but I think the new individuals who would be appointed by him would know that what they're getting into, and, and we would hope that he and, and she within the, the cabinet and the other positions would be able to work with him and perhaps not deviate as far as some would fear in terms of his governing style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Well, thank you so much, Mark Temnitsky, for your time. Thank you, Francis and Dom, for your questions. Let's move now to our final thoughts then. Mark, we'll come to you at the end as our guest. So Dom or Francis, would you like to go first? Yeah, thanks, David. So I, I note today that Brigadier General Alexander Tanavsky, Ukraine's commander of the Tavriar uh, Army Group, uh, defending the Southern Front, said that, that his forces, his men, had shot down 200 drones in the last 24 hours. So they also inflicted 400 casualties on Russia, but 200, they said over the past day, 200 different enemy UAVs, uninhabited aerial vehicles, were damaged or destroyed. He put that on Telegram. Now, a huge number. We've heard that Ukraine, well, both sides are losing double-digit thousands of drones each month. These are everything from the very biggies to the littlies. Stop me at the back if I'm getting technical. But so 200 a day is a big number, but but in line with what we've seen. Now, that leads me to to think about something that, that we've had a few questions from listeners, something I've been thinking about for a while, about this new the new era of drone warfare, that nowhere on the battlefield now can you assume to not be seen uh, visually, thermally, electromagnetically, maybe even biologically in the future with that sort of iris recognition, what have you, that is very mature. And so drone warfare is a thing. You are seen. You can't do anything that's not under the watchful gaze. Now, whether or not that gaze is then linked to a missile system or something else in what's called the kill chain in military circles. So you might be seen, but if, if they can't do anything about it and they can't bring accurate fire onto you, then maybe that's OK. But it just throws into into sharp focus this idea of what air superiority means these days. Air superiority uh, traditionally means being able to, to own a chunk of airspace for a set period of time that, that within which you can do whatever you like. And it's, it's a kind of it's a big light blue fast jet air force term. So you need air superiority there in order to give the ground forces a, a nice sort of bubble of safety above them that they can then go do what, what they need without fear of being hit from above. So air superiority, I don't think, has gone away, the, the concept or the need of air, for air superiority. I don't think that's gone away in what is undoubtedly now, if not the era of drone warfare, then just an era in which drones are ubiquitous. And you've got to assume that they are everywhere all the time. So I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. They have air superiority or you, you can you operate with drones everywhere. You do need both. But I think you must be prepared to operate in the latter, i.e., assume that you are constantly under watch by a drone and very po- you should also assume then that, that they have the ability to bring fire down onto you will what even if you don't have or sorry even if you do have the former even if you have local air superiority and your jets can can do what they like still the individuals on the ground because a jet isn't going to see a, a, a small drone that might be looking at you or carry a grenade a jet isn't going to be able to see that even if you have air superiority you still have to your side still has to assume that everything on the ground is being watched and under threat. I've not yet worked out for myself what that means and if that does change the concept of air superiority because it does sort of go against, as I say, that idea that with air superiority, the ground, your ground forces can do whatever they want within reason. Um, so these are emerging thoughts bubbling around the mind of Marge. But if anybody had any thoughts on that, I'll welcome the debate on, I suppose the exam question is, what does air superiority mean in the era of drone warfare? Thanks, dude. Well, thank you, Dom. And of course, if you have uh, your essay answers to that, we're expecting 1,000 to 1,500 words. Do send uh, them to the usual podcast address and exclusively to Dom Nichols, please. Thank you, Dom. Francis Dernley. I prefer 3,000 words myself. No, I... Uh... i two for you. <laughs> No comment. Um, so uh, 
very grateful to Mark for his time today. I, I think I, I remember seeing from one listener a message to me on Twitter that said, stop scaremongering. You know, we're a long way from presidential election. The chances of America withdrawing from NATO are, are, are very low, etc., etc. I agree, we are a long way away. But we have to talk about these things. because, Of course, these calculations are affecting policy decision making now, both in the United States in Europe, but most importantly, in Moscow. So it's important that we think about the way that they are thinking. Because as we've said many, many times, I think if it were not, if Trump was not a feasible candidate, then I think that Moscow would have to be making very different calculations, because it would know that support for Ukraine was bipartisan, and therefore it couldn't just bide for time. It would need to think very differently about how it fought this war, and maybe even would be thinking about withdrawal. But the fact is, it thinks it can play for time, and then who knows what might happen. So it is relevant, unfortunately, although I agree that there is still a long, long way to go. As ever, things are very unpredictable in politics. With that in mind... There has been a development since, what, last half an hour, um, because I said then that we didn't know exactly what Viktor Orban would do with regard to Sweden joining NATO. Well, he has just tweeted, I've finished a phone call with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. I reaffirmed that the Hungarian government supports the NATO membership of Sweden. I also stress that we will continue to urge the Hungarian National Assembly to vote in favour of Sweden's accession and conclude the ratification at the first possible opportunity. And our very own Joe Barnes has tweeted alongside that. And there is your rather fast U-turn from Viktor Orban suggesting negotiation with Sweden over its accession to NATO rather now supporting it. So there we are. I think we can expect that there has been some conversations, shall we say, taking place behind closed doors that mean that Sweden will be joining NATO pretty soon. Timeline to be TBC, but I think that's all the confirmation that we need that clearly NATO wants to get this wrapped up and some kind of conversations have been taking place over the new year with Turkey and Hungary saying we need to finalise this to send a message to Moscow. But as ever, we'll cover that in more detail once we know the full details. And just finally, David, I know it's been a while since we've discussed Russian war crimes, which is not to say we're not monitoring developments in that space. We just wait until we have something to report. Important to note this because war crimes still very much an important issue happening in the background, but highly relevant to the way this war is being fought, what has happened in the past and indeed the future way this war is understood. And I still think, as I've said many, many times, that when we reflect on this war in the years ahead, that the issue of war crimes will be the one that shocks people the most, how it was not the number one issue in many ways, because the nature of them are so egregious and so shocking, particularly the issue of children. And we'll be returning to the issue of children very soon. Thank you very much for that, Francis. And just to add to your point there, I think about when we talk about Trump, and I do sort of appreciate for listeners that, especially our American listeners, it might feel repetitive and because we will be talking about it a fair bit, but we'll do our best to try and make sure that we are intervening and thinking about it at appropriate moments. And I do think that now is an appropriate moment to sort of open the discussion as the primaries race past us. Mark, thank you so much for your time. As our guest, would you like the very final words? Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. One last thing I would like to end on on a positive note is it's not just the politicians that will determine the future of Ukraine. It's also the people. And in the United States, there are many things that individuals can do. So there are 
several wonderful organizations run by Ukrainian civilians or as well as the Americans where individuals can donate for humanitarian and medical assistance to Ukraine. Every donation, no matter big or small, is appreciated and, and goes a long way. In terms of working with elected officials, write to them, call them, speak with them, and ask them to pass aid to Ukraine. They, after all, are our elected individuals, and they listen to the people, so they say. So with a little bit of pressure, and their doors are always open to their, their voting populations, I think that this can go a long way, and, and good will come out of this. So thank you all again for having me. Sorry to interrupt, um, David, before you jump in, but just want to corroborate something that Mark said there. I used to work, as listeners will know, in a member of Parliament's office here in London. And I know it's similar in Washington that you have a large team of staffers who work for elected representatives. I can confirm that when an elected official receives what we would describe as a full post bag on an issue, whether that be an email form, in letter form, it does sharpen representatives' minds. I know there's a lot of cynicism around and for good reason about elected officials and the way they operate. God knows I believe it, having been up close and personal to it for several years. But believe me, it does count. And if enough people write in to their representatives articulating why they think the war in Ukraine matters and why they believe that their representatives should do more, if those representatives get enough of them, they do take notice. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.